Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where my friend Chris and myself, John, talk about a couple of different movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you feeling tonight? I am under the weather, John, but I am going to barrel through because uh, I'm excited about today's topic and particularly excited about your choice. So looking forward to it. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing okay. I had a small thing go right at work today, so I felt, uh, I'm feeling pretty good about that. Yeah, I had a good thing at work too, in that I wasn't feeling well, so left a couple hours early. So so you gotta take, uh, you gotta take comfort in the small pleasures of life. Yeah, that's, uh, I would take that win if I could, for sure. This, uh, the theme for today's episode, I feel, goes a bit, uh, a bit off of some of the stuff we've set up in the past. We've done a couple episodes with uh, directors as the theme. We've done one with uh, genre as a theme. And we'll definitely come back to those kinds of themes uh, in the future, uh, possibly even as soon as the next episode. Uh, Who knows? Um, But I wanted to try and see if we could pivot to something that was more uh, around subject matter as opposed to genre so that it could encompass any number of different kinds of movies. Um, And you and I, Chris, are both big music guys. We make our own music. We write about music. It's, uh, it's fairly, I think it's safe to say I, that uh, it's fairly all encompassing parts of our lives. So I thought it'd be something we could easily, uh, sink our teeth into how does that sound definitely in intrinsic to our nature i i think would be a good way to put it but 100 percent agree with you and i i like the way that we set this up so you know when we talked about doing kind of a music episode um there were some kind of constraints that we put on it so you know these aren't musicals per se um so it it is it is literally kind of the thing that we gave ourselves were film where music plays an important part. And I, again, to tag on to what we said earlier, we went through a lot of different options. Some were really obvious and we had kind of strayed away from them. Maybe we'll bring those up during the recommendation portion. Um, but uh, we came with, uh, we, we came with some, I think some really interesting picks that have some interesting similarities and some really interesting differences, uh, particularly uh, with with yours. But with mine, it's one that I had never seen before either. So I kind of I, I, I kind of went in blind with my choice, where usually what we do is go in blind on the other person's choice. So it'll be a fun one. Yeah. And this uh, I think this is going to be and like this was not when we did our Kurosawa episode, which is our test episode from the old podcast. Those picks were all movies that I had seen at least a couple times before doing the podcast. Uh, and this will be our third episode proper episode of this podcast where i will not have seen my pick prior to having watched it and i swear that's not intentional it's just (laughs) (laughs) like at some point we'll get to movies that i know and we'll just like won't even have to rewatch because i'll just know it inside and out but uh this has uh in previous cases and i think today as well it has been a nice opportunity for me to pick a movie as an excuse to watch something that i hadn't seen before and Unlike last time when I picked The Third Man, based on the search criteria of best film noir movie of all time, uh, this one, there was something that just sort of was like hazy in my memory, and this one feels like a much better pull, or a much better like guess uh, on a choice, and I feel real good about it. So why don't we launch into our first movie? Let's do it. Thank you. 
first movie is 1984's Amadeus, uh, directed by Milos Forman, uh, which is adapted from a play by Peter Schaefer. And I believe the play is actually based on something older as well, but my research didn't go quite that far. The story is about, mainly centers on the rivalry between uh, two composers, Mozart and Salieri, and the story is told of their rivalry by the elder Salieri, recounting sort of his story as sort of Mozart comes into and interacts with his life and how kind of just like fucks him up real good. Chris, this is my first time watching it, and I had heard that it was supposed to be interesting and good, but before I sort of launch into my big piece, uh, have you seen this one before? I had seen bits and pieces of it over the years, ever since it had come out. I remember watching the Academy Awards and seeing it win a lot of awards then. Um, it was only maybe probably in the last, let's say, like seven or so years that I actually sat down and watched the thing in its entirety. So this would really be, I, I watched it over the last couple of days, and this would be my, my, my second full viewing. And the thing that really struck me, I, I, I can't wait to hear your take because with this version i i gained a treasure that i didn't know i could have had for so many years i love every part of this movie uh so much of it has kind of embedded itself into my in, into the fiber of my being it's one of those galvanizing moments where you watch something and you go oh my god it this has so much more meaning than i ever could have anticipated it and it's now pretty much in my canon of my favorite films of all time i am so happy that you said that because <laughs> And not to get too dour, but you hated it. <laughs> no, I've been I've been kind of in a little bit of a funk. I'm starting to come out of it now, but I've been kind of in a bit of a not great time when a lot of things that I normally turn to for comfort and joy just weren't doing those things for me anymore, and wondering potentially what might be causing that. But when I watch this i had only i picked it mostly because i was curious and i had heard like an oblique reference to it somewhere at some point but i'd known i'd never heard anyone otherwise really talk about it but i knew it was about music so i thought well let's let's give it a chance and i saw and i basically had the same reaction you did which was it's in the realm of my favorite movies oh yeah so here's the interesting thing and this is what i want to talk to you about with with the movie so this is ostensibly a biopic of sorts. I mean, it is kind of about the life of Mozart and Mozart's music figures very heavily in it. But the thing that made me love it so much watching it now is it's not really about Mozart at all. It's not really a biopic about him at all. It is really about this all consuming envy and, 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 and hatred that, that Salieri kind of develops and how he equates that, and this is where I, I, I really want to get get your take. This is a movie that deals much more with faith than I ever remembered it having to deal with. I mean, from a structural perspective, you, you talked about it. It's really the framework of this movie is so beautiful. It opens with Salieri, now as an old man, attempting to kill himself. And it's a great, the opening is so, it's for, <laughs> for an opening that is about a guy trying to kill himself and then being committed to an insane asylum, it is surprising hilarious but then it gets to mainly the movie is kind of told in narration as a priest kind of comes for his confession and Salieri confesses the entire story that that the movie takes place in and what shocked me so much was how much of the story really is not about 
Mozart and his music or his life. It's about Salieri and his relationship to God and, and how that changes over the course of this kind of lifetime experience with this person who in his mind is 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 wrongfully touched by god yeah absolutely the rivalry aspect of it is basically where i think most of the energy and absolute electricity from this comes from once i get on that train i'm not likely to be able to stop (laughs) (laughs) so i think i want to start with uh, something that you mentioned in your previously in, in one of the things you said was about how this is ostensibly a biopic and yes it is more about Salieri than about Mozart but something that it was curious about and I think this has to do with its roots as being a stage production originally before being turned into a play is that any attempts at trying to chart an actual true life story based on these two composers is entirely beside the point yeah agreed by i mean for for start like some of the some of the touch points are correct uh like his or actual things that happened but for example salieri i believe was married and so the whole uh chaste he didn't try and sleep with anyone angle uh is really good drama and it's just happens to just not be true i would tend to think of it almost as uh, in comparison to something like the social network which is is a great movie and i love it a whole lot but i think of it as being almost entirely fictional the fact that that everyone talks about how it's it has all its facts wrong i don't think i think it only just changes the way that you think about the movie which is just this is just a really compelling work of fiction and that happens to have some some points right is almost kind of uh beside the point and then from there something that I was curious about, which I think falls into the same category of this is just a good work of fiction is the accents in the movie. Cause almost every, if this movie was made contemporary to us recording this episode, if this movie was made now, I feel like you would probably have, you would probably try to um, sell it on. We have everyone in there doing their actual accents. So everyone's doing their French, Italian or Viennese accents as uh as that stuff comes up but in this in this movie which does all the like the the buildings and the costuming very well but as far as accents go everyone is just talking american and english that i felt didn't actually i was surprised at how it didn't actually take me out of the film that that was a deliberate choice by foreman he wanted everyone to use american accents and their normal accents and i think that if the choice is between because i'm not sure what the individual actors capabilities of doing different accents are but if the if you can get great performances out of people using their like regular accented voice uh, as instead of trying to get like something that's accurate, but less compelling um, or getting actors who can do better accents or more accurate accents at the expense of a performance. I'm really happy that they went the direction they did. It's interesting. If you look at about like a little bit of the history of the movie, he he was particular with a lot of the American accents and you see some of the actors, you don't cast that actor because of their ability to do an accent. You don't cast Jeffrey Jones, right? As uh, King Joseph for his accent. This is the guy who is, you know, in in Ferris Bueller and in all these, uh, these other movies with a very distinguished voice. If you look at some of the people that auditioned for the role and didn't get 
the Mozart role, which which eventually went to Thomas Hulse, which we have to talk about. Um, Mark Hamill, who had done the role on Broadway, was one of the auditioners for this. Now, certainly so was Tim Curry, who not German like Mozart, but uh, British and, and probably very good at accents. But I think Foreman was looking to do something very different. And a straight up biopic was probably the furthest thing from his mind when he took this on. And, and 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 probably um, I, I can't remember who did the initial play, but uh, it was Peter uh, Schaefer. I think Schaefer. I'm going to imagine that that was not foremost in his mind either. It might have been dealing with some of these more, some more of the conflicts and confrontations that take place in the film itself. And before we continue on that particular point, thank you for bringing up the Mark Hamill story because I saw <laughs> that too. And the reason given in the presumably we looked at the same thing. Uh, the reason given was that the they were concerned that people wouldn't believe him as uh as a composer when they know him as the uh as they know him as luke skywalker yeah and i think with a bit of remove from just uh, from those movies being so long ago i feel like the the actual mozart performance we get in the movie could be very comfortably performed by the same person who performed a a naive wide-eyed uh, Wonderkind, which is basically like that's like I and then also the fact that he actually did play do it on stage, he yeah. did play that role. I'm glad you also said uh, Tom Hulse's name because I wasn't sure how to actually pronounce that. <laughs> I believe it's Tom Hulse, and we really have to. I mean, uh, that's one of the other things that I, I wanted to bring up quickly as well because I, I suspect we're probably going to talk a lot about F. Murray Abraham because damn straight, it might be, it might be one of the greatest performances on screen of all time. It, it's almost so good that you don't realize how good Tom Hulse is in the film. Most people will, when they think of Amadeus and they think of Tom Hulse's performance, they think of that laugh. Right. Which is extremely <laughs> distinctive and specific. I, I was talking to my wife and she said, what are you watching? I said, I'm, I'm watching Amadeus. And the first thing she did was that, that laugh. But that laugh is so indicative of so many things in the film. It's there for a reason. It's not just some weird affectation that Hulse put on. He does it. it it's mocking tone is is that sting to Salieri for, for so long. But Hulse's performance in general is, is fantastic. When you get to the end scene, which is probably the most famous scene in the movie where spoilers although at this point you're not spoiling a 1984 film uh mozart is 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 dying in bed having salieri transcribe this requiem that in secret he has commissioned because salieri has a plan to murder mozart and then steal the requiem and, and play it in his honor and get the credit for him so the whole end sequence is uh as mozart lies dying he's transcribing it and it's the most it is such a gorgeous scene. It makes you understand music in such a profound and fundamental way. Even if you don't understand the terminology and the and 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 the transitions from major to minor and and the 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 Latin terms that they're using, it is one of the most beautiful depictions of music that I have just ever seen on on film. And so much of that is Hulse and how Hulse kind of goes in this this reverie that. The, this days of 
composing and trying to get Salieri to understand and Salieri just having these moments where he finally understands he has glimpses and understands the genius with which Mozart's mind works but just can't get there quick enough it, it's just too fast for him and he can't exhibit that without Hulse giving him what he's giving him and it, it's just an amazing performance I 100% agree I think he yes I think Hulse gets to tends to get overshadowed uh, by F. Murray Abraham, but I couldn't imagine if you took him out what that would do. Like, I think he has to be as bracing, as silly and idiotic as he is in order to elicit the absolutely powerful reactions. Like, I think he absolutely holds his own and is the reason why F. Murray Abraham can do sort of the tour de force that he does he sort of enables that and in fact when f Murray abraham won the oscar for that role he dedicated it to tom hulse saying like this wouldn't be this wouldn't be this wouldn't be possible without him i yes it is absolutely worth noting that tom hulse as mozart is like 100 percent key to this movie working even though uh he is sort of the antagonist and it's very much not taken from his perspective yeah, true. And and just the and just Mozart as a character. Like, I guess this is probably a good way for us to segue into talking about F. Mary Abraham. But he he is Tom Hulse is so compelling as at making Mozart the oblivious dunce that would yet and yet with the completely undeniable talent that Mozart had that you understand like a hundred percent and without question just the extent to which effort Murray Abraham is like royally pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So let's talk about F Murray Abraham, because I, I mean, Holy, Holy moly. Where do you even start with that performance? We don't have to dwell on this too long, but you had asked about the faith question. And I think that this might be a way for us to sort of open up the movie because it does, after the opening incident, when you actually get to this beginning of the story proper, you get to talk about how Salieri as a kid basically makes praise to God and says, I will dedicate my entire life to you. I will not engage in any sinful vices, any of those things. I will be sort of the perfectly chaste, virtuous boy if you give me the talent to play music. And he takes the sign that his uh, father dies soon afterwards as being the clue that like God has accepted his deal because his dad wasn't going to let him do music. But with his dad out of the way, now he can do music. And he sort of undertakes his musical career with that sort of guiding light of okay I'm, I'm not gonna do all the bad things and I'm gonna get this talent out of it and to me where this I feel like there's a couple uh, the, the metaphor that I feel most strongly re- relates to this uh, dynamic between Salieri and Mozart is the tale of the prodigal son Everyone always thinks about the prodigal son as being the son who demands his inheritance from his dad, pisses off, spends it, uh, or wastes it, basically, and then when he has nothing, comes back and the father forgives him. But the end of the story is another part where, basically, the older son goes to the father and says, hey, I tended the farm, I stayed home, I did everything right, like, I basically followed all the rules, and yet this fuckhead comes home and makes a complete mockery of everything and yet he's somehow blessed he gets somehow blessed and now in the actual story the father says no it's fine you're you're both good like you we're not being ignored in favor of your brother it's reconciling and all that good stuff but like in this movie it there is no there isn't that happy ending at the end he just looks at mozart who shows up 
uh, and the first thing you see of Mozart in the movie is him basically making out with his girlfriend, then future wife, and ignoring the performance that he's supposed to be having at that moment. And speaking backwards fluently and perfectly as well. It's such a great performance. Yeah. The other thing for me that I notice is that when he, at some point later in the movie, when he goes to visit the opera singer who he, uh, who Salieri is uh, giving lessons to, Mozart comes in and it's just been announced that he's getting married. She seems to be very upset with him and makes a bunch of sort of snide comments about how his fiance must be good in bed. And he just looks petrified and leaves. <laughs> and Salieri's like, at that point, I knew he had had her, which I will say Salieri's treatment of women in this movie is actually bad. And like, <laughs> I can't really endorse either of the ways oh, he treats women badly. It's actually, it's actually terrible. And it, it, it's interesting to go on that tact of the prodigal son the, the thing that this and this is not going to be as nearly tight a parallel but the story that this made me think of so much was in a, in, a, in a very small part the story of job and i didn't kind of come to that till later but right up to the the point with you at, at, as a child he makes this promise to god that you know give me the you know, give me the talent to make music in your name and I will eschew all these kind of earthly sinful pleasures. And, uh, and and he gets it. Uh, you know, it's weird that he takes as this signal his father dying, but he 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 takes it as a sign. He does become a a composer and musician of uh, of note until the entrance of Mozart. He is he is fairly he has the the favor of of, of the king in Vienna. He is he is renowned, um, so he has it. And at the first sign of challenge, he literally like you find out he literally. <laughs> just engages in every sin imaginable he is covetous of of his his fame he is he is he is jealous he has lustful thoughts at no point in his heart or in his soul does he follow through on his promise to god and i think it's a really funny thing as the movie goes through and he keeps hating god and and challenging god why did god give this gift to this imbecile and not to me had i not done everything right the entire time he's just demonstrating that no he in fact did nothing right he's he's being this evil jealous covetous despicable person who treats women terribly who treats others terribly and 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 shows exactly why he is at, at least in his philosophy undeserving as the of of this gift just as much as he thinks mozart is undeserving of the gift it's, it's such an interesting like way that they draw that out actually you mentioned job and the idea that he's yeah i mean the beginning of job is like well job only likes god because god gives him everything take away what he take away everything and see how he acts i do like that parallel as well also just not i don't think we can get a lot of mileage out of this i think that there's at least some amount of salieri v mozart in the uh in the musical hamilton uh your hamilton versus burr that oh, feels sure. like it feels like there. I mean, there's like ten thousand references in Hamilton, and I feel like that's got to be at least one of them. Well, that's the other sting too, right? If, just to take the Hamilton reference. I mean, what makes this even worse for Salieri is at the end, as they're transcribing the Requiem, Mozart realizes what an ass he's been, because Mozart is most certainly an ass in this movie. He is. He is gleeful and childlike, but he's also an obnoxious, pretentious, egotistical ass. 
and he treats others with disdain uh, just because they are not the genius that he is. And at the end, he realizes that and he apologizes and humbles himself before Salieri, which just deepens the wound that much more. And it's just it's so wonderful the way that it, it plays out. I, uh, I definitely agree. I have a question. Did uh, I think we both watched the director's cut. Is that... Yes. Uh, okay. Are you familiar with sort of the differences between the uh, theatrical and the director's cut? I'm not. I mean, I, I assume there are some things. Cause they had to do some things for ratings. So I, I know there are one or two kind of more body sexualized moments of nudity that I think may have been edited. Um, but I think the first time I saw it in its entirety, I saw the director's cut too. So I'm not 100% sure. So my, and admittedly it's cursory research, but that sounds like people seemed to think that a lot of it was the music ran on longer, which kind of slowed down the pacing a bit. Personally, I didn't find that to be neither here nor there. It didn't bother me. But when I found out that the scene where he has Mozart's wife come back at night, yeah, basically at night and then humiliates her, um, by having her take her clothes off and then having his uh, servant come in uh, to see her in her nakedness. That part, uh, that my understanding is that scene was cut out. And I understand from a like ratings perspective why you might potentially need to do that. But only having seen this version, I feel like that scene, I feel like it changes the whole character of uh, Salieri and also makes the ending possible because Salieri's rage builds throughout the whole movie and he does terrible things to to Mozart. And then the big overarching plan is that he's going to have commissioned Mozart anonymously to write a requiem that uh, he will play at Mozart's funeral after he kills him and then take credit for it himself. As they're in a state of working on it, like at least part of the way through, Mozart dies and he goes to take the papers, but Mozart's wife comes into the room and she basically looks at Salieri with suspicion and contempt and tells him to leave and he can't get the papers and pull off his master plan to do uh, to take credit for Mozart's work. And the reason that that, the reason why uh, his wife is shuts him down and says, you can't take this, you have to leave, is because in the, earlier in the movie, he basically tells uh, Mozart's wife that she can, he'll help Mozart if she has sex with him. Um, and she seems willing to do that. But then at the time when that seems to be happening, he rings a bell and summons his servant in and sees her in completely undressed and she feels embarrassed and humiliated. And it's on the basis of that humiliation that at the end of the movie comes back to bite him in the ass because she says no. And it's wild to me that that scene, though horrifying and it makes him to be so much worse of a person otherwise, is actually essential to having his plan foiled in the end does that make sense yeah it does again not remembering how much i don't know if just the the nude part was omitted right because i mean you, you can very elegantly cut the actual show of nudity and just have the the doorman yeah. walk in with, as she's covering her, herself but to your point the the end the end confrontation between Stanzi, his wife, and and Salieri really can't happen unless you have that animosity toward each other set up in the in the preceding scene. 
I don't know if it had, if it would have helped him anyway because it's very famous that the that the requiem is left unfinished. The lacrimosa is 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 what they were about to start when everything happens and he dies. So famously, I mean, one of Mozart's most famous pieces of music is unfinished, um, it, it, which is is just kind of the the icing on the cake for. Salieri's, you know, failure to kind of follow through on any of the plans and machinations that he has throughout the film anyway. But that's, but that's not to say that I don't enjoy uh, his absolute, almost superhuman amounts of rage. Oh, he, he is deliciously evil in this movie. And there's actually a moment where, I mean, it gets to, he almost acts like a like a universal horror monster. I can't remember the scene. He's <laughs> one of the great, one of the great also unsung performances. Cause it's nearly wordless are the reactions of the priest <laughs> as yep. Salieri mm-hmm. is, is telling the story throughout the film. But there's one moment in, in particular, man, I, I wish I remember the sequence, but um, a little bit of visual piece here for an audio podcast, but um, Salieri is kind of reveling in the tale that he's telling, and it's 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 probably one of his castigations against God. But he kind of takes his hands and he 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 closes them up against his neck, which which had been sliced. He had tried to kill himself by slicing his own throat and his wrists in um, in the beginning of the film, so it's all bandaged up. And uh, Salieri kind of puts his hands across his throat, like in a very classic, almost Dracula way as he just goes on and on in this very dramatic theatrical performance and it's it's it it borders on hysteria almost in in the way that he he presents it and it's it's wickedly delicious i have never had so much fun watching such a despicable human being on film literally one of the notes i took for this movie was when that happens uh I'm thinking of Gary Oldman in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes. hundred percent. Yep. Even though it predates that movie by a few years, but hundred percent, like when he's in his like old age makeup and he's looking really bad and pale and also bandaged up and just in terrible shape. I'm like, like, and, and he's talking about like, I'm going to curse God or whatever he says. Yes, I'm just like, that, this yeah. is a hundred, hundred percent. This is Gary Oldman in Dracula. <laughs> I'm glad we, we both got the same thing. <laughs> i'm so glad i do a podcast with you chris this is this is just fantastic i'm so glad you picked this film because it's been years since i'd seen it and uh, a three-hour commitment you know is is a bit of a commitment to do this but man i am so happy because no joke this might be this might be one of the best films i've ever watched uh yeah no 100 it really just sort of puts you in the pocket to see what is the center of the movie, which is of course the performances from everyone. And like, yeah, the main, the obviously you're only really, your main focus is on, uh, uh, your is on the two leads, but I don't think there's any performance in this movie that I don't like. Like I really like, uh, Stanzi. I've read some reviews that have some weird issues with the character, but I just kind of like that she's is supportive of her husband, but is also just sort of is able to manage and effectively sort of take care of her own business. Like, yeah. And especially since he is kind of a, an ass, the fact that she sort of like is able to more or less be the responsible, like managing adult to this otherwise grown up man child. She's, she, she gets shit done. And I quite like that. Yeah, Elizabeth Barrage, I, I, I think, is the name of the person who played Stanti. She, she, she was fantastic. Um, Jeffrey Jones, who 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't really want to talk about Jeffrey Jones. His his real life is sort of disgusting yeah. in it on its own. But I mean, for for someone who is such a presence in. 80s teen movies and 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 more comedies to see him in a role like this it's it's slightly comedic but he acquits himself nicely in the role um if we want to talk very briefly about another star wars connection kenny baker is in this movie for a brief moment i just saw that i don't even (laughs) so kenny baker um aka r2d2 kenny baker is the he plays a role in the body um theater house uh, where they do it in English, and they have the they have the play with the horse, where you feed the horse an egg, and uh, and a bird flies out its ass, and you, and uh, you feed the horse some grapes. Do you remember that that scene where the playhouse and, and w- w- he eventually writes um, the magic flute for them? Simon Callow plays the theater owner, so Kenny Baker is one of the uh, one of the players on on stage there. Cynthia Nixon from Sex and the City uh, is in it in an early role. She's the maid. I mean, only having seen her in Sex and the City, it was very surprising to see her so young and so and so yes. effectively like playing the. I'm clearly young and being manipulated, and I'm terrified, and I don't really know what I'm doing. And she's very good in it. Yeah, she's. I, I quite liked it. I wanted to kind of t- before we we, we kind of segue out of here. We should talk a little bit about uh, kind of the purpose that we chose this, which is the music. So obviously, this is filled with some of the greatest classical music that's ever been created uh kind of mozart is indisputably one of the masters of the form but what i really found interesting about this um not only how it uses those specific music pieces and those music cues to to inform the story whether it's um, Mozart's almost blasé. Uh, th- there's a great thing where he memorizes a, a piece that Salieri wrote instantly. And uh, as he plays it back note for note, he starts to show how he can improve it and starts to improve it. There's another piece where he plays a melody in the style of Bach and then plays something upside down and does it flawlessly. And then uh, all these pieces kind of egg Salieri on in, in, in his kind of evil machinations. It, it just keeps one upping what Salieri wants. But uh, the thing that really drew me from a musical perspective is how wonderful it it shows and demonstrates the act of creation and the act of 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 forming music in in a way that I could never do, but immediately kind of identified with heart and, and soul. So whether it's the end where he's just you know batting out the section of of the requiem and, and just you know we go from. Um, F major, so let's start in in uh, A minor, and the bases start here, and this goes a fourth up, and this does this, and it, whether it, it, it's that or whether it, it's just any other demonstration of the act of composing or conducting or creating music, this film is just wonderful in its display of that. Something that, and this might go also to the character's motivation as well, but I think something that I really like about the music that it plays a role in the movie is that a much less interesting version of this movie might have tried to uh, set up that uh, Mozart was success, like not only just this like amazingly prodigious composer, but that he also would um, tr- 
uh, that his that would translate into sort of like fame and fortune for him during his lifetime and you know Salieri thinks it should have been me and I you know but that that's actually not really how the movie plays out the rivalry between them because although you are so just completely engrossed in Salieri's envy and his jealousy you pay attention to the actual details of their lives Salieri is very successful like he gets he gets applauded like he gets like his stuff gets recognized and appreciated by uh by the emperor and he's the court composer and he has this like successful career and everyone sort of everyone outside of Mozart and Salieri thinks that Salieri is the guy meanwhile everyone looks at Mozart and like he has some success and certainly Salieri has a big part to do in Mozart's uh, struggles in his career, basically sabotaging him at all at all opportunities. Yeah, it's only later at the end of Salieri's life, and of course, ever since then, that everyone thinks of Mozart. Like as in the at the time that this movie is mostly interested in, Salieri is by everyone else's account on top. He's actually the one that's having the good career, but within the bubble of Salieri and Mozart they both know that Mozart's the one and like there's a there's a weird way in which Mozart is completely clueless about the hate that Salieri has for him which again just having watched the whole movie it seems outrageous that he would be so clueless about that but when Mozart does see a performance of Salieri's I don't remember the exact words but the way that he responds is something along the lines of only you could have written this. It sounds so much like you. Yeah, he could, he couldn't bring himself to actually like. Oh, th- there's say no compliment. Nice. Yeah, there's no compliment yeah. at all in his response. And 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 Salieri definitely catches that. That he's like, oh, he didn't actually give me a compliment. Yeah. he's just trying to avoid saying an impolite thing. He's he's ever catches on to the fact that Salieri wants to literally murder him, uh, but he can't help but being like, yeah, your shit is weak, uh, and. And he knows it. And then, of course, Salieri, um, again, despite all the evidence to the contrary, in terms of like, everyone seems to like it, he knows, or he believes anyway, so strongly that he knows that his his that his stuff is also not good. Yeah, I, I, I mean, to your point, to try and put it succinctly, the, the if, if you're looking at the rivalry just in terms of fame and fortune, certainly the quality of the music is diametrically opposed to the financial fortune of the person who composed it. <laughs> I think that speaks to sort of the, again, Salieri does not do a good job of implementing any part of his plan, but his perception of Mozart as being the guy is like his true insight in of the movie because he actually is because that was i mean i i would take his deal that he makes at the beginning of the movie at face value as being sincere but then he comes along and although by all appearances he's doing well and mozart's not he recognizes oh no 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 this went to god's deal went to uh salieri and then you know or went to went to mozart sorry it's i think that's like the one thing that salieri manages to like accurately understand is that regardless of the the material conditions of their careers that mozart actually had the talent so before we close i want to bring it back to just the musical component for a second and ask you the the, the question of so as far as the use of music specifically in the film 
what's your what's your takeaway from from the use how it informs the story how it informs kind of your own perspective and view and music kind of what's your kind of glean from amadeus as far as how it uses music just to tie it back to what that because that was your original question there, there's part of it that's the insight that mozart was actually just like a killer musician a killer composer he was the real deal is is so much so much more made compelling by sort of seeing salieri react in that way like he knows like you take your cue from salieri that like if it, if he was trying to aggrandize himself you'd be suspicious but he's like no 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 mozart's the one then that is your cue as an audience member even if you don't understand classical music to be like okay mozart's the guy and the and the, and the music um is really good and i think the use of music the use of mozart's music as he you just hearing it throughout the whole time even when he's not actually performing it helps you to sort of understand and better experience sort of it allows you to sort of sit in that feeling in those feelings and then of course there are moments especially in the last scene when they're working on the requiem where as he's giving instructions you hear the those notes being played yes as as he's writing it down that is <clears throat> just incredible because of course the thing with mozart is that he everything exists in his head and he's he can hear it he understands that he sees everything and then only writes it down when he has to uh, but this is a way for us to sort of get inside that feeling of um, he's saying just notation and directions to Salieri. But as he's saying those things, we're hearing what that sounds like. And by contrast, how that feels like. Yes, that is that is exactly what I wanted to get to. And I had forgotten about it. So I wanted to come back around and get to that. If, 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 if we leave with anything, it's that the, one of the real genius pieces of this film is the way that Milos Forman communicates the creation of music via Salieri's appreciation of Mozart. Um, and, 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 and that, that scene where as um, Mozart composes, as he talks about each piece, you, you hear those identifying pieces of music kind of come together. The same thing happens in the beginning when Salieri talks about, the, he heard that piece of music from Mozart and it starts with the oboes. And as F. Murray Raham's kind of gesturing with his fingers, you hear the instrument come in and then the other instrument comes in. It, oh, uh, an oboe plays above this. And then the, it, it just, the way that Foreman kind of brings the music in along with Salieri's description does a better job than almost anything I've ever seen, read, or heard about getting you to understand kind of the 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 beauty of this this music that 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 surrounds the film. It's it's gorgeous. I agree, one hundred percent. Hello. Chris, I believe you've got our next pick for the uh, for the episode, so why don't you take it away? Great, yeah. So this was an interesting one because I wound up going with a movie I had never seen and had always wanted to see, so it was, seemed like a perfect opportunity. It kind of fit the mold of music with film. So moving away from kind of the 
however we want to phrase the ostensible biopic that isn't really a biopic um, and moving into something that is completely fictional in nature. I picked Alan Parker's Pink Floyd, The Wall from 1982. So before we kind of jump into the film itself, it's important to talk about the album for a second because really what this is is an interpretation of a concept album by pink floyd that came out in 1979 probably their most famous work if you know anything from pink floyd you probably know the wall whether it's uh, another brick in the wall or one of the other songs on it um even some of the clips of animation that kind of pepper this film um people who don't really know Pink Floyd, probably know parts of the wall. So before I kind of jump into it, John, I wanted to ask, what's your experience with Pink Floyd? Do you, it, it, as a band and with the wall, particularly, what's your familiarity or kind of position on it prior to coming in to seeing the movie? Because I'm going to assume <laughs> that you probably did not see the movie before this pick either. That's correct. Um, about 10 years or so, uh, I picked up a handful of Pink Floyd albums because I was curious. Um, it's basically Dark Side of the Moon through the wall. So the the stuff that I think that most people are who are casually into them or, or like casually familiar with them know that stuff is the the stuff the most i think i the for the album itself i would say that i've listened to it a bunch of times i think prior to getting into that uh prior to buying the album i think i knew uh brick in the wall part two which i think is the one that most people know and i liked it i think over time I have been able to sort of listen to it as a whole less and less, but just finding the individual songs that I like the most and listening to those and just sort of like cherry picking my favorite stuff because the the wall is a double album. And so you really have to sign up for a lot. And this will figure into my commentary on the the movie version of it. But I feel like the the album has a bit of trouble for me now currently in sort of holding my attention for the whole time even though i respect the hell out of it and it's ambitious as hell and all that good stuff okay how about you so for i i am a huge pink floyd fan um and the wall was probably my first exposure to them so in 1984 uh christmas morning i remember distinctly what i got i got a little tiny boombox radio that had detachable speakers that you had it had the speaker wire that you wrapped in little circles behind the boombox on these little pegs and you can move the speakers out and i got three cassettes i got van halen's 1984 i got michael jackson's thriller and i got pink floyd's the wall and uh, i played the hell out of it i loved it to death um and the interesting thing about the movie versus the album, I mean, there are there are definite differences. There's added music and 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 uh, different mixes and and arrangements of the songs from the album. But uh, the thing that I found interesting, and I I do this with a lot of music, is that um, you tend to paint your own imagery when you listen to music. So uh, particularly with The Wall, it is ostensibly a concept album. So is the film uh, about alienation, uh, the alienation of being a, a rock star, uh, in this case, the rocker Pink Floyd. There is no Pink Floyd. He's kind of an analog stand-in for Roger Waters in this case, uh, who wrote the majority of the album 
uh, lyrically and conceptually, although there are some significant uh, con contributions from the rest of the band. But he wrote the screenplay for the film as well. Um, but when I listened to the album my entire life, I have certain images and and tonal moods that kind of play in my head uh, when I hear it. And it is a it is an album that I love dearly, have bought multiple copies of in various iterations and forms over the years. So it was really interesting to then watch a a filmed version of it, which is ostensibly someone kind of taking the, putting onto the screen, their own kind of visual interpretation of what the album is and how that either successfully or unsuccessfully melds with my own. So that, that was, so I have a lot of experience with the band. That was the real draw for me with this movie. So the, the movie again is about pink, uh, the rocker pink and it, it kind of goes back and forth in time in his life uh, as he kind of can't take the fame and the booze and the drugs and the lifestyle uh, because of the way he was raised because of the things that he's seen and he builds a wall uh, to shield himself uh, from the realities of life only at the end surprise surprise to have that wall come crashing down so that's that's the the movie in a nutshell it is very kind of um uh pieced together in terms of kind of sequences and 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 rough sketches uh there are some beautiful animated sequences uh gerald scharf uh, was the uh, very famous political cartoonist. He did a lot of the animation for the film. Um, it's it's interesting. It's it's visually very appealing. One of the things that I want to ask you about um, how it worked for you, because for me, my incredible familiarity with the album, hearing something for the first time where it's not the versions of the songs I know and the imagery that uh, that appends it is not the imagery that I have in my head. Uh, it was a bit of a problem for me to get into. Um, above and beyond some of maybe the, the structural or narrative issues I may have had with the film, um, just that disconnect of oh, this is not what I think about when I think about this song or the arrangement of this song is slightly different. There, there are a couple pieces where the lead Bob Geldof sings as opposed to Roger Waters, which, which works, but then just there are these little tweaks that put an unfamiliar spin on such a familiar song and it, it didn't serve me in the way I thought it would. So I, I, I don't, I, with you maybe not being as familiar as I am with the music and, and not coming to it as often uh more recently for you did you have that same disconnect and, and and how did the film work for you compared to your listening experience this is all fascinating to hear because i think you are touching on something that uh is 100 correct which i mean and i've and i've listened to the wall like a handful of times like i at least like if you put on mother like i'm going to recognize mother and like watching the movie and hearing the version of mother that's there and i'm like oh they changed this okay and i had to like do some google has like at first, I was like, "This doesn't sound quite the way I remember it." And then I Google it and found out, "Oh yeah, they they changed a bunch of stuff uh, from the album." I think you're right, though, that my not being quite as obsessed or 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 as as f intimately familiar with the album uh, as you are, and having spent so much long time with it, I found myself less. Uh, disturbed by the changes uh, and as for the visual elements I don't really have visual images that I associate with this album there's certainly 
like that's not to say I don't do that for any music. It's just that the, for this particular album, there's nothing that I have ingrained in my head in terms of how I imagine things to go. Yeah. And so I actually liked that they added and changed aspects of the music. Not that I would want to listen to the, that Tiger song at the beginning on its own, but I thought it was a nice addition to... Oh, yeah. I thought it was a nice addition to the movie, and I thought the changes they made for the movie... The Wall is, a, is first a concept album, but if they're serious about doing it as a movie... Because I think the original idea for The Wall was to just have it as concert backing footage. Yeah. But when they're like, okay, well, this wasn't designed as a movie, but if we're going to make it as a movie, let's try to make it work more as a movie and you notice that in between songs there are breaks it's not that the runtime of the album is the runtime of the movie and so i actually i actually kind of like that they were willing to sort of have it more or less be the same but mix it up in a way that makes more sense with the visual medium being like an actual film and then again just because i i don't have my ideas of what that should be like I'm a blank slate. Just do whatever you want. And and I thought the visual stuff was actually the most compelling thing. And although my feelings on the wall have like may have not stayed as high as when I first listened to it, um, having that visual there now to watch, whether it's the live action sequences with Bob Geldof or the animated sequences, that really helps focus my attention. And even in the parts of the music where I might otherwise lose interest or I might lose focus, it, it keeps me grounded. And I mean, I would just probably say at this point, like if I'm going to go experience the wall, I would just go watch the movie because to me, it's actually the, it actually, it, it elevates it for me. So that's interesting. I um, I definitely, from a visual perspective, it, it's kind of a beautiful film. The animation is incredible when they have the animated sequences, um, particularly at the end when they cover the trial. Uh, it, it is it is stunning. And I, I think just Parker in general, as he kind of hits each of these pieces, um, it does work really well. I, I really enjoy the way that he kind of builds this isolation for, for pink Geldof in the hell in the hotel room. And then how that, how that finally e- explodes with, with the, you know, the, the familiar trope of the, um, of the rocker trash in the ho- hotel room. It is, it is visceral in this film. So I, I definitely get it. I, I think it's a, I think it's just really interesting in the way that it's assembled narratively as an as a film i i just i don't feel that it works for me i i get the whole i i get the back and forth in time like you um i actually i really enjoyed when the tigers broke free which is the it was a um it was meant to be on on the wall it was deemed too personal so it it was removed it 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 kind of bookends the film a little bit um with roger waters singing uh, I, I really like that. I like the scenes of, of war. Uh, Alan Parker can shoot a movie. Um, I just feel when I watch it, it's a little too piecemeal for me to enjoy going back to. There are certainly little parts that I will kind of remember fondly. Um, there are some really disturbing moments. There is a shaving scene where 
pink in this kind of fit as he he kind of transforms into the thing that he hates after rebelling against it for so long uh, before breaking down in in the end. There's a scene where he shaves his chest and then eventually shaves his eyebrows off. And the way that Parker films that, it is so visceral and and blood curdling as you just see this foamy sink with drops of blood falling into it and then you finally see what he's done to himself um it's 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 striking ultimately for me i don't know if it's just my the, the conception that i have built for myself of the album just not being complimentary to the film or or, or not to me it's more of a, a really noble ex- experiment that maybe doesn't succeed but i'm really damn glad it's out there because it this this could have been something much more schlocky and much more kind of run-of-the-mill studio picture and it's not that at all if i tell you that hey they they made a movie of pink floyd's the wall uh i don't know that you would expect it to be as artsy and as and as visually appealing as this movie is (laughs) i wonder if and i guess i don't know that the answer would be yes but i'm curious if you like because the visuals are tied to the song that's playing for the most part aside from the stuff that takes place in between songs the visuals sort of take place to the rhythm of the the pacing of the album and so it can give you a bit of a we go for a few minutes and stop go for a few minutes and stop it kind of gives it a a herky-jerky nature to it i wonder if we thought of it maybe it doesn't work as a movie if you think about what movie narratives usually are but as like is visual album a word is that a term like i know at this point like someone like i think beyonce has does this stuff for some of her albums now where she'll just she'll do visual stuff for the entire album that she does yes she does and i'm just wondering like if we don't think of it as a movie in the normal sense but think of it as more of a this is an integral part of the music listening experience does that would that help it sit better for you it might except that because of the way i digested this music before just in this case this film doesn't work in that way for me i think is what it comes down to yeah yeah you did uh you mentioned that you sort of have your own your own images that you like to do which is totally fair by chance did you happen to catch a a director's commentary on this no i didn't this movie was pretty damn hard to find uh (laughs) uh, it's not available streaming anywhere uh you can get dvds i don't think they're in print anymore but a lot of used places gotcha gotcha no that's cool that's cool i managed to track down a dvd copy through our library and that actually came with a commentary from uh roger waters and and actually the animator uh scarf yeah i think that in Watching the commentary, it's sort of split between Roger Waters sort of explaining the things that are happening as you're like, because I think even with the visuals, which help bring the themes into focus, um, there's still some like, they don't come out and give you like one-to-one things. You're still sort of using your imagination to engage with it and sort of like, it doesn't hold all of your hand. Uh, for it but listening to the commentary he does sort of like sort of connect all the dots for you uh that's one half of it and the other half is some various uh political beliefs that mr waters has and uh some of them are good and some of them are uh 
questionable, let's say. Yes. <laughs> yeah, th- th- there's no bones that this is a very, for him, autobiographical film. Uh, so you have to take kind of the good with the bad with it, which I am willing to do. I mean, uh, regardless of whether I may or not agree with the politics, um, it, it just in the end, as a straight film, this just doesn't it's not successful for me, which is not to say it is not without merit or there are things about it that I don't find kind of visually appealing and that I really like. But I, I don't know that I'm ever going to return to this probably it's still, i still have to ask the question do i want to go back and and listen to the wall uh, again but i think uh i guess the, the point i meant and the, the point i wanted to get to i guess with the uh with the commentary bit was that it does feel like although i know that he some of the references he made were actually like a couple small aspects of the story of the wall are actually taken from actually from sid barrett um hmm which he, you know, he incorporates a lot of Sid Barrett into a lot of his music. So that's not, uh, uh, that's not particularly surprising. I think for me, in addition to like just having a better appreciation for the wall, having seen the movie, it also, the, I guess a counterpoint to that is it also sort of, aside from the stuff that he says is not about him, having this sort of being brought into full relief about, oh, this is really about Roger Waters. Like this is like, I, I mean, I like David Gilmore as a guitar player. Like, I don't want to de- like denigrate the the other members who like are very successful in their own rights. It does feel like the wall is very much about him and what he's personally about, for better or for worse. Yes. Which I mean, you just kind of have to sit with that and see how it feels. I'm something I thought was always interesting in light of uh, or something i now think is interesting in light of watching this a couple times is the fact that he did go back and stage giant huge elaborate productions of the wall in the last few years like that was a huge giant successful tour he did but the whole impetus for the wall and was the fact that he hated being a rock star he hated he hated the whole life that he had created for himself but he must have gotten over it because the wall is one of the biggest most successful tours or the 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 one that he did the solo tour he did like i think it was like 2013 or something like yeah. fairly recently i'll 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 say this and maybe this is a kind of a good way to kind of close out the the movie and and the main part of this episode um after watching the wall um i was content though i did not go back to listen to my my album, uh, whereas after I finished watching Mozart, I immediately went to go listen to The Marriage of Figaro. <laughs> so if that says anything for about the power of music in, in these films, at least for me, watching Am- Amadeus immediately made me want to go listen to Mozart. All right, to close us out for the episode, we're going to do our recommendation segment. As far as movies about music, I think you and I both had an early thought, which we thought to be too obvious, a selection. And But that being said, I'd be lying if the movie High Fidelity isn't a huge part of my movie watching career, even before I thought of myself as a person who actively like seeks out movies. Like I watched it... I want to say in college and fell in love with it immediately. I I should give a potential caveat that I haven't watched it in a long time. And I have a sneaking suspicion that my appreciation for uh, John Cusack's character might diminish only in the sense of like, I'm not there anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And so his, his navel gazing, I don't know if it holds up as good, but 
it's even if I when I go back to rewatch it, if I uh, feel differently about the character, I still think it's a really good movie. And of course, that scene where Jack Black, uh, or no, it's a, it's not Jack Black. It's the other guy who uh, knocks out Tim Robbins's teeth with a phone. Never never stops making me laugh. So. I like it. <laughs> Uh, I am actually going to kind of break the rules somewhat. I'll be very quick, but I want to talk about three things uh, that I really highly recommend. I wanted to stay away from things that were very directly about this is about music. This is a biopic. This is about, you know, that or, or this, I want to do some, recommend some things that were very different um, in that regard. One of them is very similar to Pink Floyd's the wall. And you actually mentioned it. Um, I cannot recommend enough. Something that had the total opposite experience for me. Um, Beyonce's lemonade movie. Uh, It is, a gorgeous and surreal kind of interpretation of her album. Um, and it works very much like Pink Floyd, that there is no narrative. It is just these series of vignettes set to music. So you could you could say, theoretically, it's just a collection of disparate music videos for her album. But it doesn't play that way. It plays so differently. It plays like a dream of a life uh, that is larger than life and sometimes smaller than life and has uh, mythology in it, but at the same time is very intimate and very real. And uh, even not being, you know, you don't have to be a fan of the type of music Beyonce does to get some value out of the way that she presents this particular story on, on screen. It is, it is a sublime, gorgeous uh, piece of visual art that I can't recommend enough. On the other side of the coin, very quickly, two films, both from Criterion. So uh, I'm going to pimp for Criterion a a little bit. Um, All That Jazz, uh, Bob Fosse, uh, Roy Scheider. uh, It is about uh, it is it is Bob Fosse writing and directing kind of about his life, um, a fictionalized version of his life. It is a it is about a a choreographer and a musical director putting on a musical and how his life kind of spins out of control and it is it is a it is a ride and a half music plays such an important part in both his life and in this film but it's not about music but the music informs the film in such a way that it is um the two are integrated and inseparable which is similar to the last one i want to talk about um, true stories. Uh, David Byrne from Talking Heads made a movie, and he made a crazy movie. It is a it's cr- so crazy. <laughs> he made a crazy, vaguely David Lynchian, but it, like the nice parts of David Lynch uh, movie about um, small town Texas and folks getting together and putting on a show, and what their lives are like inside and outside as that musical show comes together. And David Byrne kind of plays the He's the narrator and the the guide throughout the movie. Um, again, very surreal. Music plays a huge, huge role in it. Talking Heads have some great moments in it that themselves, but it's not just the Talking Heads music that that's in it. It's the other pieces in there as well. John Goodman is in it is and is phenomenal. Um, it's just one of those movies that when you are done watching it, you will have a huge ass smile on your face just for this oddball slice of Americana and how music interweaves with it. Uh, so three things, very different, uh, using music very differently than kind of your run of the mill musical or biopic. Um, can't recommend them enough. 
Well, thanks so much. I definitely need to listen, or I definitely need to watch that uh, Beyonce one because uh, I have not yet to do it. And yeah, True Stories, I just watched a couple weeks ago. That was, uh, I, I don't know if I understood it, but I was delighted. So Yeah, so again, very similar to, to, to Pink Floyd, <laughs> The yeah. Wall in, in some ways, but it, it is a hoot to watch. Well, thanks so much, uh, as always, Chris, for for doing this with me. It's always always fun. Uh, where can people find you on the internet if they'd like to do that? If you would like to do that, and you are certainly under no obligation to do so, um, I occasionally am on Twitter, um, cmvoss042. Uh, you can also find my writing, at, and John's for that matter, over at Nine Circles, where I I don't do as much writing as I do podcast producing over there right right now, but I do occasionally write the article, so you can check it out there. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much it. Yep, and uh, you can find me on Twitter, if you like, at, at PetCow, P-E-T. K-A-U. And as Chris mentioned, I occasionally do a review over at Nine Circles. But yeah, I liked how we ended at the last episode, which is basically to say, thanks for listening. Do whatever you want to do with this podcast. I, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend like I expect people to, you know, rank us up the charts, but, you know, just do what you like. I'm not your parents. <laughs> well said. Well said.